Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Waded Crusado to our show. Dr. Crusado is the president of Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. Hi, Waded. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm very happy to be here with you today. Well, can we start off with you telling me a little bit about Montana State University and why students select your institution? Absolutely. That's one of my most favorite topics, Dave. And uh, well, what can I say? We're proud and humbled to say that Montana State University is the university of choice in Montana and for Montanans. Um, we're the land-grant university of the state, which means that by an act of Congress uh, in 1862, we were called uh, with a single mission, and that is to educate the sons and daughters of the working families of America. And, and I think that we're hitting that call at MSU. According to Forbes magazine, Montana State is the top public university in Montana based on value, post-graduation salary, and student experience. We are the largest university in Montana and we have been very deliberate in procuring that our nearly 17,000 students have access to state-of-the-art facilities and world-class faculty that complement our majestic environment where nature can be part of the student's classroom and their lab and their playground, right? Dave, we try to maintain a very low um, student to faculty ratio, which keeps our professors accessible and provides opportunities for hands-on learning and collaborative opportunities among students, but also between students and faculty. And I think that is part of our success. Um, MSU is uh, among the top universities in the nation uh, for Goldwater scholars. Actually, we are one of the top three in the West. Um, And Goldwater Scholars are the most prestigious award recognizing undergraduate students in the sciences and in engineering. Just the last three years, we have been able to get four out of four of our nominations uh, being awarded, right? So that is absolutely incredible. If we were to talk about, you know, the last, decade, we have had three Rhodes Scholars, two Gates Cambridge Scholars, one Marshall Scholar, four Schwarzman Scholars, eight Truman Scholars, and eight Udall Scholars. In fact, we doubled up on Truman Scholars in 2015, 2018, and 2020. So we're committed to uh, intellectual prowess, but also to community engagement. And this is a good moment for me to also underline this. As proud as we are to attract the best students in Montana and the region, right? And the nation and the world. Um, Just to say about 74% of the most academically accomplished seniors in the state choose MSU. We know that if we just focus on the best and the brightest to the exclusion of other students, then the promise of the land-run universities compromise. And in fact, it is shortchanged. So we want to ensure at MSU 
that any student that comes here, irrespective of his or her background, can realize their full potential by becoming accomplished professionals, responsible citizens, and happy and healthy human beings. And that's why I think uh, we, we have been so successful. I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop there. Well, you know, uh, I'm very familiar with your university, but uh, I've been told that sometimes parents listen to our podcast to find out what's in their backyard in their communities. So if you wouldn't mind, could you share some of the, some of your unique programs or some of your outstanding programs? I, I know if I asked you to do that, you're going to list all of them. So, <laughs> so but uh, could you could you talk a little bit about the programs that you have available? Absolutely. Well, let's start with the basics. So land-grant universities were first founded with two big programs in mind. How to address the needs of America, particularly in agriculture and in engineering, right? Back in the 1850s, when we were envisioning the phenomenon of land-grant universities, the truth of the matter was, as a nation, we had a lot of land, but we did not know how to cultivate it. And uh, we did not have the know-how to build the roads and the bridges that will con connect those communities back in the day. So our two pillars are the colleges of agriculture and the College of Engineering. The College of Agriculture is the only college of agriculture in the state of Montana. And we have some incredible programs there. For example, um, about five, six years ago, we were able to open the first vet med med the veterinary medical program, which is in combination with Washington State University. And it allows 10 students from the state of Montana to be part of a very exclusive cohort. They start taking their courses here, then they go to Washington mm -hmm. State. But here's the thing, every summer, they come back to Montana for their practice in large animals. That's a very unique program that we have. Um, the College of Engineering have five extraordinary programs in mechanical and industrial engineering, in chemical engineering, in civil engineering, uh, among others. Um, unique programs are WAMI program. It's a, it's a combination or a partnership with University of Washington which for the last almost 50 years has allowed a cohort of students, first 10 students when the, it was first founded in 1974. Now we, we're going all the way up to 20. You can come to Montana State University, you will receive the first two years of medical education, and then you will go to one of the, well, not the, the premier, it's the number one program in family medicine uh, at University of Washington. Uh, as you said, I could go on and I could talk about the wonderful programs that we have in the sciences, in the arts, in the humanities, in education, in business and entrepreneurship. Uh, we have the only college of uh, school of architecture in the state of Montana. So we have some very select programs um, that uh, we want to make sure that we attract those students, but more importantly, as a Landron University, I want to make sure that we address the needs of the state. Great. I think what I'll do is since you have so many, I'll make a note to, to go to your webpage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's new at MSU? Well, there are many, many wonderful things that are new at, uh, at MSU. 
what can I tell you? Where do I start? Um, a few years ago, we launched a very unique program that we called the Hilleman Scholars. And let me tell you a story about that. We name it after one of our alums. His name was Maurice Hilleman. This was before the pandemic. Um, and it's relevant for the pandemic because Maurice Hilleman was a vaccinologist, arguably the most prolific vaccinologist in the history of humankind. But that's not how his life story started. He was uh, born in uh, Miles City, Montana. Three days after he was born, his mother died, his, swin his twin sister died, and therefore he was raised with his older brother by this uncle in a chicken farm, right? Very humble origins. And what they have told us is that Maurice's highest aspiration when he was a teenager was actually to work in the local JCPenney store. All right, so fast forward, his uncle decides one good day to take him to Montana State College. This is in the late 1930s. And um, they found a scholarship for young Maurice because they were so poor that they would not have been able to even afford the very modest tuition that we had at the time. So Maurice majored in microbiology. He ended up graduating number one in his class back in the day when we ranked all the graduates. And uh, he became a vaccinologist. How appropriate from his upbringing in a chicken farm, right? So he developed the vaccines for mumps, rubella, meningitis, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and others, including eight of the 13 vaccines that we administered to our children today. That wow. came from the hands and the brains of a Montanan. And not many people know that, know that. okay? So the thinking behind our program was, how many other Maurice Hillemans are out there? Where would we be if we hadn't had a, a Maurice Hilleman coming to Montana State? But more importantly, where, will, where would the world be if we give more people an opportunity to realize their potential? So I reached out to Maurice Hilleman's widow, Valerie, and I asked her if we could use his name to motivate Montana students who are not thinking about coming to college, about giving it a try. First, she said, Valerie asked me, is this program for exceptional students in the sciences? And I said, no, Valerie. It will be actually for students who are not thinking about that they are college material, if you will. So the long story short, we established that program now called the Hilleman Scholars. Um, these students come from every corner in the state. They have to work very, very hard. These are not your top of the line students, right? Um, these are very modest students. And uh, we just graduate, we have now graduated two classes, including our first cohort, um, students that did not graduate in four years, which is part of their agreement with us because they graduated 
in three and a half years. Three of them graduated in three and a half. So that's one of the programs that we have we have been putting a lot of emphasis on. We have a new baccalaureate program in hospitality and tourism. We're hearing a lot about the need from the industry that they need to have top of the line qualified entrepreneurs, people who are willing to take advantage of the incredible assets that, they, that the uh, state has to offer in terms of tourism. Uh, our wonderful two-year program, Gallatin College, is offering a new suite of programs in optics, which is one of our strengths in the College of Engineering. Did you know that Bozeman has more spin-off optics companies per capita than Tucson, Arizona, for example? That's thanks to our College of Engineering. Uh, College of, of uh, uh, Gallatin College is also putting out new programs in avionics, which is the part that deals with the electrical components of aviation. Um, on, in terms of new construction, um, that's one of the areas where we have been very blessed, thanks to the generosity of, of our alums and friends, and also with the help of the legislature, just three that come to mind that we are uh, given the uh, finishing touches, the American Indian Hall, which is a $20 million uh, project, beautiful, facility that was envisioned back in 2003 and made a reality by the generosity of many, including the Candida Fund, which gave us 12 out of the $20 million for the construction. We're also finishing um, uh, the Bobcat Athletic Complex, an $18 million new home for um, our, the Bobcats in football. And uh, we're also finishing Romney Hall, which was this amazing project that took us 10 years to be funded by the legislature. We're taking our 1922 gym, right? And we are repurposing it into a classroom facility that will allow us two things. Number one, rather than teaching 41 students per hour as used to be the case, now we will be able to teach a thousand students per hour. And then we're going to have a wonderful math learning uh, uh, center there because we know that math is absolutely essential in keeping students at Montana State. And we're going to have a, our veterans center, which is going to be called the Travis Atkins Veterans Center, thanks to the generosity of the GM Forte uh, Foundation. Wow. You know, uh, for, for the listeners who haven't had an opportunity to be to come to your campus, it, it's a beautiful campus. I, I always enjoy stepping on MSU, but I also knew that it's it continues to grow. So I was excited to hear about some of these new new things that's going to be happening in the future. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you now. Can can you discuss a little bit about um, the path that you that you took that finally led you to become the the 12th president at MSU? Well, Dave, I always like to say that uh, if you had told me as recently as 20 years ago that I was going to end up serving as president uh, of a university in Montana, I, I would have looked at you with very confused eyes, right? I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Um, I'm the firstborn in my family of four. 
Um, and I, I had a, an advantage and a blessing. And that is, I was born in the city that's uh, the sister city to Bozeman in that it's the home of the land grant university. I was the first person in my family to go to college. But that doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that it was because of any special talents on my part. It was not because of intelligence. It was not because of hardworking ethos. If you had met my mother, she was arguably for me, one of the most intelligent individuals that I have met. And my father was very hardworking. So it was not grit. It was not intelligence. The only difference between my parents, my predecessors and I was that quite honestly, someone gave me an opportunity. They gave me high expectations, right? But someone opened a door and I, I became enthralled with the promise of higher education, particularly public higher education, because I know that it can transform your life, your life, the life of your family, the life of your community. From not having anyone going to college before me, now my son is a physician. My, my daughter is a school teacher. So see, it's, it's the gift that keeps giving. And therefore, I, wanted, I just wanted to be in a university setting. And all I wanted to do was to teach and do research, quite honestly. One thing led to the next. I became involved in administration in Puerto Rico. In 2003, I, uh, I was nominated for a Dean of College of Arts and Sciences in New Mexico. So I left the island of enchantment only to find that New Mexico is the land of enchantment. <laughs> and uh, so my career path was, I was going to stay in New Mexico, thinking before that I was going to stay in Puerto Rico, right? Where I had been hired as a faculty member in the same land-grant university where I graduated as a, back, uh, as a baccalaureate student. Um, and then in 2009, um, I received this call from a, uh, a search firm. And at the time, because of a combination of factors, I was serving as interim president of New Mexico State University. Um, that's another story in and of itself. Uh, from Dean, I became provost there. And eight months into the job, the president left for another institution the regions asked me to serve as, uh, as president. I said, I have only been provost for eight months. Thank you very much. Only to find later on that the interim president was not able to come because of health matters. And therefore in that unceremonious fashion, I became interim president of New Mexico State. The search firm calls and they said to me, um, President Gamble has stepped down from Montana State University and we would like to have a conversation with you. And I said, I know Montana State University. It's a great university. We have added it to our peer institutions because of the great things that they're doing, but I don't like to move. I like New Mexico. Thank you very much. And Dave, I hung up the phone. Wow. A month later, the same individual calls me and he said, um, 
you have now been nominated to the presidency of Montana State University. And uh, so I decided to go to um, the US census page. Because here's the thing, a native of Puerto Rico, right? What is it? 96% of the population is Latino. I was now in New Mexico with half of that 48% Latino population. I thought, so what is the Latino population in Montana? So I found it was 2%. So I responded via email. I thanked the individual uh, and I declined the nomination. And the phone rang again, third time. And it's this person. And I asked them, I was a little bit exasperated, right? I, I, I told them, listen, I have never been to Montana. When I think about Montana, I think about mountains and horses and snow. Do, <laughs> I don't look like, I don't sound like anybody in Montana. And I remember Dave, I lowered my head and I asked him, what do you see in me that I'm not seeing? Because in my mind, what I was thinking was there's no way, right? I'm a woman, a Latina, speaks with an accent, five feet tall, background in comparative literature, all the reasons why that would not be a good idea. And what he said was, what we see in you is your experience with land-grant universities, your experience with uh, systems, uh, your passion for underrepresented minorities, and we're looking for someone with a lot of energy. At which time I said, on that note. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I was the last person to submit the papers, candidate number 59. And to my great honor, I made it to the finalist. And I, this is no exaggeration. This has been among the biggest blessings of my life. Uh, other than being a mother, uh, having an opportunity to live and breathe this air and be among the most incredible people in the, uh, in the, in the whole world. That's how I made it here. What a great backstory. You know, I remember I was at MSU Billings uh, when you came in in 2010. I think it was around 2010, correct? And uh, I did not know any of that stuff. That's a really <laughs> interesting backstory. Wow. Um, well, since you mentioned land-grant institutions, so in 1893, MSU became Montana's first land-grant institution. Can you talk about the history of the Land-Grant Act and why it still matters? I think it's incredibly relevant. And um, as I started saying before, back in the 1850s, um, America was a very different place. We, we were extraordinarily rich in terms of, of possessions, but we did not know how to manage this incredible asset of our land. And we did not have the know-how for the most rudimentary things. In fact, you could say that higher education in America, as late as 1860s, right? It was still conducted in the same European model of colleges and universities were for the most part private. 
colleges and universities had very limited academic offerings, mainly in medicine, theology, and law. And colleges and universities, let's face it, even until last, uh, well, two centuries ago, almost a century and a half, were reserved predominantly for men coming from wealthy families. And along came this idea, which was fostered by a congressman from the state of Vermont. His name was Justin Smith Morrill. And there are several big lessons on that piece of legislation. First of all, he proposed to fund the first public university in America, but not just one university. Think about vision and scope and scale. He said, let's open one public university in each state and territory of the union. That's why Montana was included even before it was a state. That's why Puerto Rico was included even being a territory, right? And here's the kicker, he said, these new colleges and universities will be funded to educate the sons and daughters of the industrial classes of America. It's the first time in a congressional document that the word daughters is included, mm -hmm. right? The, that piece of law was defeated twice in Congress. It started making its move in the early 1850s. Finally, after a third attempt, it passed on July the 2nd, 1862, and it was uh, signed by President Abraham Lincoln. Let me stop there. 1862, when we were right in the middle of a civil war, where we had every reason not to do this, not to incur in this expense, right? And as a nation, we came together and we decided to envision a better and brighter future by educating the citizenry. To me, land-grant universities is, is the most phenomenal social experiment in the history of humankind because it propelled social mobility, right, to, to new height. Uh, I would not be here had it not been for a land-grant university. So that was the first land-grant act. In 1890, a second land-grant act was established, and that one gave life, infused life, to what are known, now known as many historically Black colleges which prohibited racism, prohibited exclusion, and funded this new brand of public institutions, particularly in the South. And therefore, a hundred years later, in 1994, Congress received a third piece of legislation known as the Third Land-Grant Act. Here's what some people don't know. That was to concede or give the title of land-grant institutions to tribal colleges. What some people don't know is that there was a task force that was put together back in the early 1990s to go to Congress with that request. And the chair of that task force 
was President Michael Malone, president mm. of Montana State College. And there was another man by the name of Joe McDonald, president of Salish Kootenai College. And thanks to those two men, the third land grant bill was passed. But also, thanks to that, Montana, the state of Montana, has eight land grant institutions. One land grant university, seven land grant colleges, and therefore we have the largest number of land grant institutions than any other state in the nation. I did not know that. I did not know that. See? Yeah. I knew, you, I knew you'd give a good history lesson here. I, I get all giddy about it, Dave. <laughs> so then what's the future? Is there still a need for this land-grant institution? I think that need is now more urgent than ever, right? And there are some very important lessons in it. First of all, think about it. As I have said now like three times, the origin of the land-grant university is how do we fix America's most pressing needs, which in that time was agriculture and engineering, the lack of those resources. What are the most pressing uh, problems that we have right now, right? Healthcare, for example, comes, mm -hmm. comes to mind. So if we can think about our land-grant universities or more generously, if we can think about public higher education as meeting the most pressing needs of society, I think that then people will stop second guessing the value of a college diploma and be thankful that because of the things that happen in our classrooms and our labs and our field work, we are able to solve problems just like Maurice Hilleman did, right? Yeah, I was reading a few articles about land grant, and I think the best phrase I heard was they kept referring to land grant institutions as the people's university. I just love that phrase. I thought that was I so I love neat. that phrase. Yeah. I love that phrase because, you know, and it's important, um, Dave, for us to remind ourselves about that because I like to say that for a nation that saw its birth out of a revolution against aristocracy. Um, we, if we're not careful, we tend to gravitate towards exclusion rather than inclusion. For example, many land-grant universities, I think, ha have abandoned their commitment to the educating the sons and daughters of America for trying to attract a, a, a more the top, the top notch students. And as I like to say, we have incredible good students at Montana State University. But if all I do is try to focus on the best and the brightest to the exclusion of all the students, then I reduce the promise of the Langren University to it being nothing else than a conveyor belt. A conveyor belt where the outputs are going to be exactly the same as the inputs. I know that those best and brightest students are going to graduate and are going to be successful. But the land-grant university cannot be a conveyor belt. We are a combustible engine. Meaning, right, that we take those students from wherever they come, we put them here for four years, 
something happens inside that engine and out. Now you have a competent professional, a responsible citizen, and a happy and healthy human being. So that call is as urgent today and into the future as it was back in 1862. And uh, the circumstances that we are now today are not worse than a civil war. So we, there's hope. Excellent, excellent point. So what's been some of the biggest lessons you have learned as an academic leader? And what advice can you give to other university presidents? The most important lesson that I have learned um, as an academic leader is that there are three things, and this is what I tell presidents that I, that I mentor. There are three things that you have to do every day. Communicate, 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 right? As academic leaders, we need to be present in our communities. We need to listen, not only tell our story, as you can tell, I can talk a lot and brag a lot about Montana State, but it's because I have, I try to devote an equal amount of time to listen to people, right? I have not learned how to do this job in an efficient manner. This job requires a lot of what we're doing today. Lots of face-to-face interaction, lots of communication with individuals. For example, during the pandemic, um, I always sent out an email to faculty, students, staff, alumni, and donors about every two weeks. And uh, there are several email addresses and some of them are managed by the office. When the pandemic started, I asked my assistant and, um, uh, and the IT department, I want every single email needs to come to me. And they thought I was crazy. And I will confess, it made for very long, long days, right? I was still emailing at midnight. But it allowed me to have my finger on the pulse, to better understand what the fears were, right? Um, What were our students thinking? What was our faculty concerned about? What were those parents who were not here thinking about what is the university doing? So to me, that's the most important lesson as an academic leader. You need to be present, you need to communicate, and you need to listen a lot um, to what people have to say. Well, then how has your presidential leadership style evolved over the years? Oh, that's a fascinating question. question. Let me start, let me start with the conclusion, uh, Dave. Okay. I'm grateful and I'll, I'll go into more detail, but uh, what the presidency has done for me, it has given, it's been like a good fire that has purified me, right? It's, it has added a patina of patience, mm-hmm. of empathy, of understanding of people's most quiet aspirations and their potential, right? When we think about universities, yes, particularly research universities as Montana State University, 
the only university that has been recognized by Carnegie as very high research, very high community engagement, and very high undergraduate enrollment. But still, it all starts with the dreams and aspirations of one student, of one faculty member, right? So it has, it has made me a better person, right? It has, it has taught me that I, it cannot be me first. Uh, there are many things I cannot do, Dave. If, if I go, let's say, I go to a restaurant or to a store and I'm not happy, I cannot complain, right? Uh, a month into my job, I came with a big old puppy and he was exceedingly miserable. And I adopted uh, a rescue dog. First thing that dog did was attack the big old puppy. And I asked myself, did I make a mistake? And then I realized I could not go back and return the puppy, right? Because if not, that would be a headline, heartless <laughs> president of Montana State University, right? So the presidency has been very good to me in that it has allowed me to think about others first and put people first. My leadership style uh, has evolved into being a better listener um, and a better team member. Let me illustrate it with one specific practice. About 10 years ago, the executive team, we, we always have a retreat, we read a book, and the book that year was Patrick Lencioni's The Advantage. In one chapter, he talks about the importance of meetings. And he recommended the meetings that you're familiar with, weekly meetings, monthly meetings, retreats, quarterly retreats. But then he said that he recommended a 10 minute daily stand-up meeting. Hmm. And I said, well, let's give it a try. Um, my, my team was not very happy. I said, okay, let's give it a try for six months. And there were many objections, you know, the team members come from different parts of campus and we were meeting in a circle going around the horn every day. So here's what happens. What has happened over the years, it has given all of us a better appreciation as to what is each other's job. What does the provost do? What does the chief financial officer do? What does the person in uh, information technology do? What does the uh, um, attorney does? It allows us to be more nimble, right? When, when there's a, an emergency starting to come up, we can nip it on the butt. We can tackle it immediately. But above all, it has shown to me and to them that I'm just one member of that team. These daily meetings occur even if I am not in campus. And now I have the tranquility that even if I am not in campus, people know exactly what needs to be done. And I don't need to be at the forefront of that. In conclusion, 10 years later, now if you ask my team whether we should continue with these daily meetings or abolish them, they don't want to talk about it because this has become a very valuable tool. Wow, excellent point, excellent point. What's been some of the proudest moments you've had as 
president at MSU? Oh my goodness. That is a bad question because it's so, if I can indulge. Um, well, first of all, I, I told you about the Hilleman scholars, right? Thinking about how do you attract Montana students who are second guessing their talents, their intellectual ability and bring them here and see them succeed. That has been an incredible moment of, of pride for me. The College of Education uh, put together this great program that it's called LIFE Programs. It's an acronym that it goes, learning is for life. And the learning is for life scholars, Dave, are individuals with severe intellectual and or developmental um, disabilities. And here's what we discovered. Many of those individuals, right, we only provide K-12 education for them, which means when they are 18, they don't have anything else to do. Well, we have put them in our classrooms. We have given them jobs. We have given them a reason to be, to feel, you know, valuable. Those students, actually we graduated some of them from our two-year programs this last graduation. They become the most loyal employees. They become the most devoted students, right? Mm -hmm. But again, let's open a door of opportunity for them. I'm very proud of our vet medicine program with Washington State and very proud that we doubled the number of WAMI students that can come back and serve the state. I am very grateful for the support that we were ultimately able um, to get for Romney Hall from the legislature. This was a $32 million project. They gave us 25, we raised uh, the rest. I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to establish our two-year program here, uh, Gallatin College Programs, and that we housed it right here in the heart of campus so that we know that these are students like anybody else, right? And it's our job to make them successful. If I can brag a little about my faculty members, they are sure. the best faculty members. And in the interest of time, I will just mention, I will just mention three. Um, Kathy Whitlock, uh, the first faculty in the state of Montana to be inducted into the American Academy of Sciences because of her very important work on the environment and particularly on wildfires as we were discussing before we started the program. Neil Cornish, a faculty member in the physics department. Neil was part of the physics team that confirmed some of Einstein's gravitational wave theory. Wow. And think about it. We have now Neil in a classroom with students passing that incredible knowledge to students. And Blake Wittenheft, for example, in our microbiology department, if you have seen Walter Isaacson's latest book, The Code Breaker, which is the story about the Nobel Prize, Jennifer Dudna. So there is an entire chapter on Blake Wittenheft and his work on Dudna's lab and gene on gene editing. And Blake is, again, our students can 
rub elbows with someone who has worked in the lab of a Nobel Prize awardee. Um, I'm very proud that Montana State University received the papers of Ivan Doik. Uh, that's on the literature side of me, right? Um, that the papers were being asked actually to go to Stanford uh, University. Um, um, University of Washington, of course, wanted to have um, them there. And uh, I'm very, very thankful to Carol Doig for giving us those, those paper. And what, what our wonderful people in the, in the library did, which is they digitalized every piece of paper, which means in true land-grant university fashion, now those papers are totally democratized. Anyone in the whole world can see the papers of Ivan Doig's. I'm very proud of my students. Um, and I could go on and on and on. And I told you some of the incredible accomplishments that they have, but few people know that our MSU student orchestra was one of only four to be invited to play in the Lincoln Center during the Sosa Festival. Um, I'm very proud of the, of the student athletes. Um, they do extraordinary things on the field, on the court. Um, yeah, we, we all get excited about the, the, the Cats-Grizz rivalry, but it goes beyond that, right? These students devote between 20 to 40 hours a week, a day, and a week to, to their sport. And uh, the students at Montana State University just graduated a much faster clip the student athlete than the, than the general population. Not only that, on average, it's said that when you take a look at uh, student athletes in the nation by, by program, about 18% of students will major, of student athletes will major in science of in, or engineering. At Montana State University, consistently, it's about 36%. So it's twice the norm. Right, and they still graduate at a much faster clip um, than many other students. I am very proud of the support and the involvement of donors and benefactors. Think about it, Dave. In the first 10 years I was here, we raised over $413 million. $413 million, right? From people that do not have an obligation to give that could have done whatever they wanted to do with that money. And you have a, a Jake Japs, right? From Eastern Montana, giving us $25 million for a new building for the College of Business. You had Norm S. Bjornsson from Winifred, Montana, population 200 people, right? Giving us $50 million for a College of Engineering that then was matched by 20 million, an additional $20 million from other alumni. Um, the support from alumni, from friends, even from people who did not graduate from Montana State University makes me feel pride, but it also makes me feel very, very humbled. Last but not least, I'm very proud about what we do in our seven experimental stations, right? We have the ears of our agricultural producers. We let them know before some products are even in the market. This is what's coming. They bring their problems to us. We solve them through science, right? 
extension. We have, we have literally a storefront in every county in the state of Montana. Our extension agents are still there when our communities go through floodings or wildfires or financial distress. It's that MSU agent who's right there as part of the, of the community. I am incredibly proud of them. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that for nine years, uh, we were able to take a, a summer bus tour. Uh, we put all the deans, all the vice presidents together in one bus, and we would go to a special region in the state of Montana. And we name it by, by theme. We had follow the grain, follow the beef, follow the tourism, follow, <laughs> follow the energy. We learned a lot about, so what are the, the main economic drivers and what are these regions composed of, right? And we will meet with people there. We will reach out to our legislators. We will go into cafeterias and bars and learn from the people who send their sons and daughters, their most precious uh, assets to Montana State. And last but not least, I'm very, very proud of MSU's response to COVID-19. The faculty who were at the forefront of this, Blake Wittenhef was among the first ones in the nation to start talking about wastewater uh, uh, testing. Um, the students, you know how much we ask of those students to wear their mask, to wash their hands, and they did it. There was an honor system. They, they, they went into quarantine. They isolated if they were sick. I, talking about reaching out, I called them when they were in isolation, right? And how are you, how are you doing? And they will tell me, well, you know, I am not happy here, but, <laughs> and, uh, and we will have great conversations. And there was, when, when the vaccine was made available, Dave, then we reached out to our, our medical professionals here in combination with the faculty and the students of nursing, in combination with the students from Gallatin College, which who were in clinical uh, programs. And we scheduled the first, one of the first vaccination clinics in the state of Montana. In one Saturday, we vaccinated 801 individuals in eight hours. But wait, there's more. We also had students from industrial engineering monitoring the operation. So for their second vaccine, we implemented the observations that students from industrial engineering recommended as to how we could be even more efficient. And we were able to vaccinate 98% of those people in half the time. So that is really, right, interprofessional experience. Everything in the university has, give, has given us an opportunity to learn. And uh, I'm so sorry for taking so long, but I just oh, couldn't no. be any prouder of Montana State. No, I, I think... Uh... Well, Dad, I think anybody who knows you, you're one of the most passionate people I've ever met. And so when you get money from donors, there's no question why you get that. So, <laughs> um, so if let me ask you, this is kind of an odd question. Um, 
I'm going to kind of, it's kind of a futuristic question. So if you could just snap your fingers right now and make one thing happen, <laughs> what would happen at MSU? No strings well, attached on the budget money or whatever. Uh, well, first of all, I am thankful because many of the, many of the dreams and aspirations that I had have been, have been totally fulfilled and realized them even more than I had could ever imagine. Following the line that we have been talking about, how is the Landgren University addressing the, the greatest challenges of the time? I think that the biggest challenge that we have is healthcare, right? Access to the healthcare, uh, addressing healthcare's, healthcare disparities. What do we do in a state of our size with scarce population pockets? How do we make sure that everybody um, has access to quality healthcare. Part of that vision has been realized, and again, in the doubling of WAMI slots, um, our wonderful College of Nursing is doing a beautiful job. We were able to sound the alarm about suicide in Montana, but also say, we can do something about it. When we established the Mental Health uh, Research and Recovery Center, we, it's, it was with an emphasis on suicide prevention. And what we do is that we use, it's a very interdisciplinary uh, endeavor. We have um, uh, faculty members from psychology, from engineering, from nursing, even from uh, chemistry and nutrition, right? Saying, why is it that Montana has this pernicious problem and what can we do about it? So the first few years when we first started, the state of Montana's numbers were always among the top three in the nation. Now we're still high at five, at the fifth um, um, slot, but it's going down, which means there are interventions that we can do. There are resources that we can deploy. We can work with K-12, right? That's where uh, also our education faculty members are working on. We have reached out to extension. Those individuals know which families are in distress, right? It, whether it's financial or other reason. And if I could snap my fingers, that's what I would do. Continue this tradition of having the land-grant university addressing the most pressing needs. And I think that the most pressing need for our state right now is healthcare. Excellent point. Uh, well, it's safe to say that before you start looking for answers, you need to ask the right questions. So what questions do you think need to be asked regarding the future of higher education? Well, the future of higher education, and let me just say, uh, we have same problems as the rest of the nation and some very unique problems. So for example, one big question I have is why why do we have declining numbers of Montana residents attending uh, any public higher education campus? Um, I have been taking a look at those numbers uh, a few years ago. Um, the percentage of students that were not choosing any university in Montana was about 32%. That number is higher nowadays. It's about 38% of students do not choose any public university or any 
higher education experience or opportunity in Montana. Why? Why are we losing them? Uh, second problem that I that I'm very concerned about, even though it's not MSU's uh, reality, which is the declining number of men uh, coming to college. Right? We're still not there for whatever reason. <laughs> I have more men than women in our student population. That is truly an anomaly, okay? But the rest of the nation, what we are seeing is that men are opting out uh, of a college education and that is not good for anyone. This is not good for those men. This is not good for the future families that they want to establish. This is not good for society. What can we do? Um, thirdly, the pandemic helped us in many ways to accelerate many of our decision-making processes, right? Public higher education usually moves at a glacial speed. Well, that was the beauty of the pandemic that we really needed to make quick decisions. Can, what else can we do in order to keep that pace so that the communities feel that we are that we're walking in tandem uh, with them. What is the future of online education? Here's one thing I learned a lot. Remember all those emails that I told you that I was receiving late at night? Students and their parents were very happy that we were doing a lot in terms of online, but they realized that what they treasure is the face-to-face, -face, the opportunity to be immersed, to be part of a community, right? to engage in activities together after class. And, and we learned that. So what is that perfect mix that we can try to, to have? How can we optimize so that we give our students whatever they need in order to learn and to learn better? Um, and so those are some of my, my daily questions. Well, I hope that those questions can be answered sooner than later down the road, that's for sure. <laughs> Last question. Uh, do you have some favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? I do. I do. Here, here are the three that I, uh, that I go to. Uh, number one, it's um, The Leadership Challenge by Kozis, K-O-U-Z-E-S, and Posner, P-O-S-N-E-R. I like The Leadership Challenge because... Um, it's not touchy-feely. It's actually based on over 30 plus year of research that it's still ongoing. And the question, the basic question is one, what do extraordinary leaders do when they are at their best? Okay. And um, of all, and they take people from the public sector, from the private sector, from education, from businesses. And they, let me see if I can remember some of them. They say, first of all, when you are at your best, you model the way, right? You, 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 you don't preach, you act, and you, you embody those institutional values. Secondly, when leaders are at their best, they inspire a shared vision. It's not what I want for you to do, right? I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to inspire you to accomplish something that will be of, of a common good. When leaders are at their best, um, 
They challenge the process. They ask, why? But why are we doing things this way, right? You, you are not uh, shy about saying, maybe we can try something different. Fourthly, when leaders are at their best, they enable others to act. That's the part that I was telling you about the patina, right? You, you, you allow others to take the credit. The most powerful words that I can use, Dave, is I need your help. And then you let you go and do it, right? And feel that sense of ownership and empowerment. Finally, when leaders are at their best, they encourage the heart. They take time to say thank you. They take time to recognize others. So that book is amazing. Secondly, uh, second book, uh, The Advantage uh, that by Patrick Lencioni. That is a great book, best practices. Uh, and thirdly, one that it's a little bit old now, but it's good to great, right? Mm. Just uh, Jim Collins. Uh, how, how do we come to understand that good is the enemy of great? And how do we consistently stretch towards that goal? Those are my three favorite leadership books. Well, those are some great points to, to end our conversation with. Well, um, thank you for this invitation, Dave. Thank you so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation today, Wydad. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, if you or any of our listeners are ever in Bozeman and uh, you have a few minutes, please stop by the office and say hello. It will always be a pleasure to see you and to see any of our wonderful people in Montana. Great. That uh, wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.